All right. Well, good to see you here, and welcome. And if we haven't met, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. Uh, yeah, and Stephen, we don't get many spontaneous bursts of applause. And, and by not many, I mean zero. So that was, that was really <laughs> encouraging. Uh, thank you for bringing that good news to us and just being an encouragement. We're going to be in two passages in the Gospels this morning, one from Mark and one from Luke. They're both in the bulletin. So if you don't have a Bible, that'd be the easiest way to follow, Mark 6 and Luke chapter 7. You know, every year, I think it's every year, the, uh, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., they'll, they'll honor people with great accom- accomplishments in the performing arts. And in 2012, one of the honorees, I guess three of the honorees, but one band was Led Zeppelin, at least the remaining members. So you had Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, and, and John Paul Jones. And there were different people who performed or, or spoke in, in, uh, in honor of Led Zeppelin. It'd be funny if someone was visiting DPC for the first time and they just like, that's the only phrase they heard when they walked in the sanctuary about honoring Led Zeppelin. But anyway, uh, but different people performed, but the, the, the former band, uh, I think former band, Hart, Nancy, and Ann Wilson, they, with their supporting band and kind of like orchestra and choir and everything in the background, they performed Stairway to Heaven. And they nailed it. Now, think about this. They, they came out with Barracuda, which, you know, if you listen to like a classic rock station, every third song is Barracuda. That, that came out in 77, so this would be 35 years later. They stepped out, and I mean, they just nailed it. And so uh, you can watch this online. As you're watching it, you're watching the band and the musicians and all that. And then it'll cut up. You know, there's this special section where they're sitting up in the balcony, and they've got these multicolored ribbons and these medallions from the Kennedy Center. And it's showing these close-ups of their faces, and, and Robert Plant has, like, red teary eyes. But then sometimes they're just looking at each other and smiling. And then at the end, they, they give Nancy and Ann Wilson and all the other players a standing ovation. And when I watched that, I thought, man, you just played Stairway to Heaven in front of Led Zeppelin, you know, and like every other famous person in Washington, D.C. Oh, and like the president and First Lady Obama. And you crushed it. Take the rest of the week off. That was like, that's impressive. And that they responded to you that way, that they wrote that song. That's their song, and they rose to their feet to, to say, well done. What, the people who make us say, wow, what makes them say, wow? You know, the people who make us say, wow, what makes them say, wow? There's only two instances in the Gospels of Jesus essentially saying, Wow. And it doesn't use that word. The, the way it's usually translated in, in English is that something happened and he was amazed. Or it might, in our translation say, he marveled at it. He had wonder at what he was saying. And I wanted to look at both of these accounts this morning. There's sort of negative images of one another, or one's a negative, one's a positive. One of the incidents is recorded twice in the Gospels. But I, I want you to look at both of these incidents. And just here's what we're looking for. What makes Jesus say, wow? You know, the Christian doctrine of Jesus, the biblical doctrine of Jesus, is that He is not a mere mortal. He is God in the flesh. We're saying, what makes God incarnate 
marvel at somebody. Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 7. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Luke 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us as we hear you, and we thank you that we can gather together, that we can sing together, that we can pray together, we can confess together, we can greet one another. We can come to your table together, but, but we need first to feed at your word, uh, with your word. We need you to be our shepherd and come to us as needy sheep and feed us from your hands. So please do so, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, um, I, I was listening to National Public Radio, and I heard an interview with an artist, a musical artist named Anoni just came out with an album called Hopelessness. And uh, there was an interesting moment, and I had to go look up the, the, tran, uh, the transcript to make sure that I, I heard this correctly. But there was an interesting moment where she was talking about a song on the album called Four Degrees, and it's a song about climate change. Now, even as I'm using this example, I'm not giving my thoughts about that, opinion about that, policy about that. But she was writing a song about climate change, and it's called Four Degrees, and the refrain in the song is, uh, I want to see the world boil. But it's not like a sad, ominous song. It sounds like a dance song. And so the interviewer asked about this, and let me just read the transcript. 
I want to talk about one more song on this album, Four Degrees. This is a song that I would totally dance to, but it's about global warming. So I can imagine being on a dance floor with abandon, but this is really provocative, right? You're putting the person who would be singing along with you in the position of singing, I want to see the world boil. It's only four degrees. It's fine. Global warming, no big deal. And when I was listening to the interview, I kind of prepared myself for it. Here comes the chastisement about fossil fuels and all that. And then here's what the singer said. You know, the idea of the song was to give voice to the narrative that underscores the reality of my behavior rather than my intention. My behavior is as a participant in this culture and as someone who enjoys fossil fuels, comfort. So I'm not being ironic when I sing this. I'm actually singing the song of my body as opposed to the song of my intention. Then the interviewer said, wow, so you're calling yourself out. And she said, this is my song. This is our song. This is what we actually think. None of us want this to be happening, but we're all doing it. And get this, on this record, I'm trying to crack my own denial. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, that is such an interesting way to say that because in her own words, in a very different context, she described why we confess sin. Like why as followers of Jesus Christ we confess sin. We are confessing a gap. We're confessing the gap between here's my intention Here's what I say I believe, and here are the realities of my behavior. But our confession talked about unbelief. And the thing is, we're gathered here, and I'm not saying this is everyone in the room presently, but the critical mass of people in this room is believers in Jesus Christ. But when we confess, we're saying what? I don't believe. I do, but I don't. Let me ask this question before we start looking at the passage. And I'm asking not so much of the person here who would say, I'm not a Christian or I'm not sure what I am yet. I'm asking this question of people who are here who would say, I am a Christian. I profess faith and, and I follow Jesus Christ. When, if you've been to our worship service, every week we have like silent confession and then confession together. And during that silent confession, that's just time for you freely to just, it's just between you and God. He hears us and to talk to him. Do you ever feel like I'm just saying the same things week after week after week? Well, I, yeah. I, and here's the thing. It's appropriate for us to confess things over and over and over and over. But as I thought about this, I thought something that is rarely part of my confession is to say, Lord, I don't believe you. In other words, when, I'm, when I complain, I was, like, I was saying to Dana and somebody else recently, I feel like I've been complainy lately. Well, a lot of the time, but it spiked lately. Um, God takes a dim view of that, grumbling, murmuring, complaining. When I complain, is the problem just the complaining? What's up underneath it? What's up underneath it you could call unbelief? Because I'm saying, God, everything you send my way is for my best. You have all wisdom. You have all power. You know exactly what you're doing. But up underneath that is what? You don't know what you're doing. If you knew what you were doing, I would not feel this way right now. Now, I'm going to tell some people about it. Do we ever, 
in our own, and, and not just on Sundays, but just in the interaction that we have with God, do we ever say to him, I don't really believe you, at least on this, or at least I showed it during that, that I don't really believe, that I have unbelief. I, I want to bring that out because you, you, I'm sure you caught it from reading through two instances in the gospel of Jesus looking at a group of people or looking at an individual and marveling, saying, wow. And again, they're sort of negatives of one another. One's a good one, if I can put it this way. One is a good wow. It's belief. It's faith. One's a bad wow. Unbelief. Unfaith. So let's, let's look at these briefly. And uh, I'm going to start off with the bad one. We could say bad wonder, bad marveling, a bad wow. This is the one from Mark chapter 6. Um, this is in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I looked up trying to get a sense of what population Nazareth was in his day. I don't think we really know. It's never called a village. It's always called a city, but it doesn't seem to have been a, a really big city but these are, these are his people. This would be like his hometown church. Grew up going there. It's the Sabbath. There he is on the Sabbath. Even Jesus went to synagogue. And uh, he stood up to teach during the worship service on the Sabbath. And it says that when he, when he stood up to teach, what was the response of the people? It says they were astonished. And this is a different Greek word than the one that's used of him about marveling. But it says that they, they, they kind of went, wow. What did they say wow about? Two big things. His wisdom and his works. When he stood up to teach, now this is early in his ministry, but he was teaching around, and he, it, these are his peeps, you know. These are his hometown people. They had heard either him speak or the kind of things he was saying. And when people heard Jesus speak, this is all through the Gospels, they would say, that is different. Whether you liked it or hated it, that is different. That doesn't sound like the scribes. That doesn't sound like the Pharisees. He's not quoting so-and-so who's quoting so-and-so. That's not like the rabbis. It has teeth. It's weighty, whether you liked it or hated it. And they had grown up around him, grown up around his family. So, like, They were astonished that he could do this. They were astonished at his works, which probably means primarily what? Healing. And, and again, if you've been around the Gospels, you get used to this. But you just think about, you, I bet, know someone right now who is either terminally ill or has a condition that it, it remains to be seen if it'll ever get better. And it affects his or her whole life. And you just wish you could wave a magic wand and make it better. Well, after last week's sermon, that would be bad. We talked about magic last week, but you, you wish you could do something and make them better. Jesus actually, in the power he had as God himself, anointed by the Father with the power of the Spirit, he could just touch someone or just will someone, and they would be healed. Like someone born blind, had never seen, could see. He could raise people from the dead. And so the people were astonished. And so you're kind of thinking, okay, synagogue, Sabbath day, people at worship, they're astonished by Jesus. Too enthusiastic, thumbs up. So far, so good. 
And then things take a turn. And just to sum up, why did they take a turn? Or at least what was the context? Here's a three-word expression that you've heard before, and I want you to tell me the third word. Okay, three words. Familiarity breeds contempt. And it's exactly what happened. Look, look, look at what they start talking about. We don't, we don't normally think about Jesus having all these siblings, but listen, to ha- these are hometown people. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Which is that's an interesting reference. It's not just that his dad was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are, not, uh, and are not his sisters here with us? And then what changes? And Mark doesn't explain why it changes, but he just says this, and they took offense at him. It's like he just turned on a dime. He doesn't explain it, but they were astonished. And then there was this sort of collective sense of, who does he think he is? We grew up around him. Why does he think he can stand up and talk to us this way? Why does he have these delusions of being more important than we are? And they took offense at him. And then Mark says this, and I will tell you, this is one of the most theologically challenging verses in the New Testament. Verse 5, he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there. And what does it say in the Greek? It says, he could do no mighty work there. It, It almost to me is evidence that these are trustworthy historic accounts. Because if you were writing a mythic account of Jesus, you would never have a sentence like that. But somehow, in some way that we can't explain, Jesus, who has all power, could not do these works of healing, except for a few examples, because of the thing that made him say, wow. What made him say, wow? Unbelief. Just stifling, suffocating unbelief. And it's really instructive what he's looking at. What is in front of him when Jesus says, wow, look at that unbelief. And, and I, would, I would direct this particular, particularly to the person who's here who would say, and you know, I've had someone sit across from me at a meal here in Greenville and say these exact words. I, look, I'm not ready necessarily to worship Jesus or say that I'm a follower of Jesus alone, but things are good with me and Jesus. That's the question. Things are good between me and Jesus. I believe He exists. I believe that, like, the world would be better if more people read what He had to say and what He did and lived like Him and followed His teachings. He laid down His life in love. I I mean, I I would love for all kinds of people to know more about Jesus. So I think at that level, yeah. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not putting like all my spiritual eggs in the Jesus basket. Think about, and especially if that's you, think about what Jesus is looking at when when he is about to say, wow. He's looking at people that have to believe he exists. He grew up with them, and he's standing right there. And they've heard him stand up and teach in a way that's astonishing. He teaches like no one else. They know it's different. They know it's weighty. And they know that he has supernatural power. So just think about that. They believe he exists. They know his teaching is unique and different. They know it's powerful. They know that he has power to do the supernatural. And Jesus looks at people that have all that, and he calls it not faith. 
unbelief. That should get our attention. That, that Jesus, and, and let's think about this. You know, this is his hometown. I think something of his wow, something of him marveling is, I grew up around this community. I grew up in this community and never sinned. And everything that I'm saying is watertight, as was the entirety of my life. And it was lived in front of you and around you and with you. And you're hearing this teaching, and you've watched my life, and you've seen these miracles, and you'll have none of it. You had the most resources. Maybe you had the highest level of exposure in the Holy Land. And wow. Where do you think he would say, wow, now? Like, where, where, globally speaking, is a unique concentration of just churches and pastors and Bibles and theological literature, online talks, other Christians? We're in a very target-rich environment where we're sitting. I mean, we might be the sort of people that if, if we're still kind of saying, I'm not going to put all my spiritual eggs in the Jesus basket, but I feel like things are good with Jesus, believe He exists, we could be the ones He's looking at saying, your not faith is jaw-dropping. It could be you. Now, that's the bad wow. That's His bad wonder. What's the good one? Because the, the, these are negatives of each other. Luke chapter 7 he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' uh, grown-up hometown. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew records that at some point he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. That became his hometown. And he's there, and uh, in this passage, you never see the other main character. Jesus is the main character, but you never see the other one. Who's the other one? It's this Roman centurion. What's a Roman centurion? The, the name came from originally they were officers over a hundred men, 100 soldiers. By this point in time, it may have been more or less, but, but centurions were exemplary leaders in the, in the Roman army. In fact, when you read in the Gospels where a centurion shows up, they're usually cast, even by the Gospel writers, in a pretty favorable light. Well, Jesus is uh, he's in Capernaum, and a group of Jewish elders is sent by this Roman centurion to Jesus. So we haven't seen him. This group of men come, and what do they say to him? They say, listen, we've been sent by this man. His servant is sick. He's very concerned about him. He wants you to come heal him. And just so you'll know, you need to do this. He is worthy for you to do this because he loves our nation, and he financed the building of our synagogue. He is worthy for you to do this. And this is really interesting because Jesus doesn't just always kind of like hop to when someone says to do something. Like when his friend Lazarus died, he intentionally took too long to get there. So he doesn't just like do whatever anybody says. But he just immediately starts heading that way. Well, as he's heading that way, the centurion, when Jesus is close to the house, sends another entourage. And these are not Jewish officials. These are his friends. And the group of friends say this on behalf of the man. Now, there's, 
I hope you saw this contrast in the passage. The elder said, he is worthy that you do this for these reasons. But when the centurion spoke for himself through the friends, what does he say? Lord, don't bother. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And it would have been one thing if he had said, I know that you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile, and if you come under my roof, it'll make you ceremonially unclean. That, that would be one thing. That's not what he says. He says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. And I just almost pictured this point. I hope this isn't inappropriate to say, but I just picture if this were a movie and there were a detective trying to understand this, he would just be looking at the evidence file on this interior. And I just picture him like with a cigarette just going, who is this guy, you know? If you're listening on the podcast, I'm smoking my cigarette right now in the air. Because just like, we don't know a ton about him, but think of the little pieces of evidence we have so far. Again, not to insult your intelligence, he's a Roman. Roman, centurion, like utterly Gentile. He loves the Jewish nation. The Jewish elders say that. He financed the building of the synagogue. He called Jesus Lord, curios. Now, that might, in his context, mean sir, but even if it's sir, I don't think Roman centurions were in the habit of calling Jewish peasant men sir, and especially Lord. Calls him Lord. He's concerned about the life of this servant. His servant is not expendable to him in a culture where servants could be. And then think about these other two. He says... I'm a man, when he sends his message, you'd expect him to say, I'm a man with authority. You know, and Jesus, you're a man with authority. So please wield your authority. He says, I'm a man under authority. People can tell me what to do. I can tell people what to do. But I'm a man set under authority. Just hang with me here. Do you understand what he just said? He said, if there's an analogy between what my life and your life, Jesus, then I'm like the disease in my servant. I'm under authority. If one of my higher-ups says to do something, I have to do it. If you tell that disease, that sickness in my servant, to do something, it has to do it because it's under your authority. But just to me, the, the, the one that's killer is that he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I have read this passage. I have preached before on this passage. And I'm telling you right now, if I saw the resurrected Jesus Christ on my street after I fell down and worshipped, I would invite him into my house and not think about it. It's my house. And this Roman says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Since, uh, since this past Monday was World Turtle Day, let me, let me use a turtle illustration. There's a, uh, a preacher, speaker, teacher in our denomination named Steve Brown, and he's famous for saying, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you probably figure he didn't get up there by himself. I think it holds water. All right. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you probably figure he didn't get up there by himself. When you see a Roman centurion who just inexplicably, he loves the Jewish people and he finances the building of a synagogue 
and he calls Jesus Lord, and he cares about a servant, and he says that he's not worthy for Jesus to come in his centurion house, and he identifies himself as being, I'm a man under authority the way everything's under your authority, Jesus. How does he know all that? How does he have that? He has it the way any human being has it. And the Bible is uniform on this. He has it because God gave it to him. Any human being, any son or daughter of Adam and Eve who has faith, it's because God, we're the turtle on the fence post. God had to give it to that person. And I want you to feel just how great this is. God had to give the centurion faith. And when God incarnate, not even in his presence, is just hearing about the use of that faith that God gave him, God incarnate says about the God-given faith, wow. In fact, it's interesting the way Jesus said it. He kind of looks around at the people around him and kind of says, well, well, well. Look at who has such faith. I have not found this in Israel. It's a Roman centurion. Almost to highlight the fact it must have come from God. Let me read something to you. This is one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of what faith and living and applying faith, what it means to God. A friend of mine just, uh, just came out with a book, or is about to come out with a book, and this is the end of his book. And he's describing the first Christmas he ever bought a present for his mom. He was in fourth grade. He just felt too old to draw a picture or do whatever. So he wanted to buy something, and it's getting close to Christmas, and he didn't have any money. He's in fourth grade, doesn't have any money. So he's moping around the house. His mom asks him what's wrong, and he says, I wanted to get people Christmas presents, and I don't have any money. So he could just... He, he knows now she just kind of filed that away. That same week, she looked out the window and said, look at all these sticks in the yard. I sure wish somebody would move them. I'd pay $10 for somebody to move these sticks. I hurried outside, collected all the sticks. Now get this, which was my responsibility anyway as part of my weekly chores. And just this once, my mother paid me for it. And after the yard was clean and I was thanked and given $10, she said, I'm going to the store to do a little shopping. Would you like to come? Of course I did. On the way there, she mentioned she'd seen some necklaces and wished she could have one. They go to the store. Each of these necklaces costs $9. So she kind of indicates the one that she likes. He buys it in front of her with the money that she gave him, drives him back home, He rushes back to a back room. He gets the wrapping paper. He gets a box. The box is too big. He's in fourth grade. He's horrible at wrapping. He's horrible at it. He he uses the whole roll. He comes out crying because he can't do it. His mom comes back there, gets a new roll, wraps it for him, and they put it under the tree. Okay, I'm going to read this the way he wrote it. Christmas finally came. I went to the Christmas tree to retrieve the present that my mother had paid for, picked out, drove me to get and wrapped. My mother unwrapped the box she had wrapped, clasped the necklace around her neck, and hugged me in what felt like the biggest hug in the history of hugs. She said, I love it. Thank you so much. 
It's just what I wanted. And my friend says, that is what judgment day is like for the believer in Jesus. Gives it to you. Brings you to life so that you can have it. Works in you by His Holy Spirit. Gives you His Word to nourish it. Puts other people around you to spur you on in the living out of it, as as I was doing with James. And on and on and on and on. And then at the end, we stand before Him, and He looks, and it's all what He did, and He says, so well done. Well done. Good and what? Faithful servant. And I'll tell you, that is good news. Whether you don't presently have saving faith or you do have it, but there's that denial. There's that gap. You know what's the only other use of the word unbelief in Mark? It's a few chapters later where a guy asked Jesus to help him with a miracle. And he says to Jesus, you know, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if all things are possible for the one who believes. And I'm so glad that God recorded the next sentence because the next sentence is, I do believe. What's the rest of it? Help me in my unbelief. And I'm telling you, that last part can be prayed by anybody. It can be prayed by the person who's never believed or by the person who's believed for decades. But honestly, so many things in my life say, I, I don't really believe this. Like, we're the people who can look to God and say, help me in my unbelief change these gaps in me, and God can give us the thing and work in us by His Spirit, and then look at the handiwork of His own hands and and marvel. He must be very loving, and He really is. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for those here who have never as we said, put all their eggs in the Jesus basket that for the first time you would give him or her saving faith. We pray that this morning someone here who does not yet know Jesus would be made a follower of Christ by your hand. We pray, Father, for those who, who do believe, but we're saying, help me in my unbelief. My words show unbelief. My, my, my anxiety shows unbelief. My anger and my lovelessness shows unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. And Father, please help us. And let us stand before you and watch you marvel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.